Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everyone, I am so grateful to be here today with you. This is Rob Weiss and I'm here uh, with my friend uh, Marnie Faree. Marnie, welcome. Hi, I'm so glad to be with you, Rob. Uh, if I may, I'm going to say a little bit about you, Marnie. Um, I, I can tell you know the listeners that you're a colleague, that are, you're a friend, that we've served on boards and committees, and we've done a lot of work together to try to advance the field of healing human sexuality in a variety of arenas. Um, but let me tell you a little bit about my colleague, Marnie. Marnie Faree, MA, is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Nashville, where she directs Bethesda Workshops, a short-term Christian-based intensive program for sex addicts and partners. In 1997, uh, Marnie established the first gender-specific treatment for female sex addicts. And in 2018, which is right now, folks, Marnie is pioneering the first intensive workshop for female teen and adolescent sex addicts. Wow, you're working with young teenagers. That's a tough one. Her book, No Stones, Redeemed Women Redeemed from Sexual Addiction, uniquely addresses this problem in women and was the first book in the Christian community written by a recovering female sex addict. Ms. Free is also the volume editor and a contributing writer to Making Advances, a comprehensive guide to treating female sex and love addicts. Welcome again, Marnie. Thanks. I really am glad to be with you. You know, it's funny. Um, I don't think that most podcasts or radio shows uh, really kind of spend a lot of time with questions like, tell me about your sex life. <laughs> but but I think in the case of, uh, you know, the issues that we have, the issues that the people who are listening have, it might be really useful if you don't mind to introduce, especially as a woman, I think, because we don't hear enough from women who, who are struggling, a little bit about how you found this field for yourself. Because I don't think you said, I'm going to be a therapist probably at 15, but here you are. That's exactly right. And I actually didn't say that I'm going to be a sex addict either, but um, but that's exactly what what happened. I am a grateful recovering sex, love, and relationship addict, and by the grace of God and the fellowship of community, have been on this journey of healing since 1992, so a long time, and I'm very, very, very grateful for that. My path to sexual addiction is a path that's very typical for many of us, and that's a path of great family dysfunction and of years and years and years of sexual abuse. So those experiences obviously shaped me a lot. 
my mother also died when I was very young. So I grew up in a single parent home with a preacher dad who's a marvelous man and also an unrecovered sex addict. So just lots and lots of baggage in my background that I, of course, had no understanding or awareness of, but that quite informed my views of relationships and of getting needs met and of love or what I thought was love. Yeah, and then that that kind of leads me to the question I want to ask you about that, which is how how do you think in your mind, I know as a therapist you could probably explain it, you know, with a lot of fancy words, but, you know, just in your own kind of plain talk, if you would, how do you think being abused as a, as a young adolescent or young child and having losses that were unresolved and having a, a dad who was, had his own problems that were playing out? I mean, how did, you know, a lot of people say, well, what does it have to do with being an adult? I mean, that was then, that happened in your past. You know, you can grow beyond that. Your dad's not here anymore, you know, all of that. Um, how did it influence what we deal with on a day-to-day basis, sex addiction? Oh, I think it colors every single bit of my being. Uh, all of those unconscious um, learnings, all of those experiences, all of those attachment wounds taught me a lot about what I thought was true about myself, like no one is going to take care of me. I'm going to have to get my own needs met. And actually, everybody else's needs are more important than mine. But if if I want to have any hope of getting any attention, that's going to come in the form of, quote, love. My primary abuser was a dear family friend, actually a, a man involved with my father, and was a very, very nurturing person. I'm sure he was also a sex addict as well as, as what today I know, of course, is an offender, a perpetrator. But in his relationship with me, he was super nurturing. He spent time with me. He was attentive toward me. And so very quickly, I paired attention and affection and approval with sexuality. And that that wiring, you're not going to unwire uh, automatically just because you're an adult. So, so I learned that if if I wanted what I really craved, which are legitimate needs for, again, attention and affection and support and nurturing and exactly all of those kinds of things that it was going to come primarily from a man because I didn't grow up with female uh, nurturing figures in my life and that you might get those good things. And it also came with with sex. And that actually was okay with me because, again, I, I didn't really know any different other than all the Christian background of my upbringing uh, created lots and lots of shame about sexual activity. But when I could space that off, and I, I could do that pretty well because it was I was so desperate to get the other needs met, this was not an abusive relationship in terms of physically being harmful. It wasn't that kind of abuse. It was actually a, a he didn't he didn't rape he didn't rape you he didn't violate you right no nothing like that. In fact, it was extremely nurturing sexually as well as emotionally. So all of that was really, really, really confusing, but I clearly carried that into adulthood. My forms of acting out were very intense, enmeshed, nurturing, highly sexual, very attentive, long-term relationships. And it's the perfect mirror of the abuse and abandonment of my childhood. Yeah, I was going to mention, you know, I, I so here we are having this conversation, which a lot of people don't want to have, which is, you know, my child is in the past, and what happened to me happened then, and now I'm an adult, and I am responsible, can make all my own decisions. So, 
you know, the kind of common thought is if you're acting out sexually, well, that's what you're choosing to do. I mean, these were choices you made as an adult. I know that people get kind of weird when we start to blame our childhoods. And I am, by the way, I'm not saying that to you personally. I'm just saying like, how do you talk back to those people who don't understand the relationship between who we are today and how we were raised? I think it's a very fair question, Rob. Uh, and is certainly one that, that people who love somebody who's struggling with inappropriate sexual or relationship behavior are, are trying to sort out for themselves. Well, you're making a choice to do these things that you claim you know are wrong. And that's true and it's not true. Of course, it's true, particularly in in the beginning of a relationship. But, you know, a relationship, at least for me, it didn't start off with, hey, wham, let's go have sex. It started off with a conversation or a phone call or going for coffee or or things that are choices that for most people would be benign. Why were they not benign for you? I mean, what was different? Yeah, what was different for me was that that it was all part of an unconscious pattern of trying to get in, into enough of a relationship that, again, would fill, I always called it the black hole inside. And that kind of filling, particularly between a man and a woman, I'm a heterosexual woman, would almost always turn sexual. And it's that part of the choice that ultimately, when we look at addiction, the ability to choose in the moment is removed from the addict. Um, we get in the zone, it's called, or this unconscious progression that in recovery, we call them rituals, triggers and rituals. And so all of that pattern is extremely unconscious, but it's informed by, I think, first, very legitimate needs and desires that are common to all human beings of affection and nurture and safety and attention and all those kinds of things. Uh, and then that just, though, is informed by a trauma history like mine into the vehicle for getting those needs met is something about an intense relationship and almost always that intense relationship becomes sexual. So there's a whole unconscious pattern of this. It's kind of the same way. Think think about it like someone who's struggling with diabetes and, and she doesn't know it. Well, I'm thirsty all the time and I'm going to the bathroom all the time and I don't know what is happening about that, but I just know this is this is just what's driving inside. Well, when you come to get that medical diagnosis, you go, well, of course. I mean, yeah, of course, that's why these things were happening. I'm I'm certain from my own story of recovery, as well as from all the clinical training that I've had and all the work that I do at this point, probably with thousands of addicts and partners, is that that same process is at work. So I tell people it is not about blaming behavior on the past. Now, I think there's a lot of blame that could be assigned. I think my father bears a lot of responsibility for the dysfunction in our home. Yet at the same time, he was a very wounded person, the same way that ultimately I was wounded. And so he's coping the best way he can know how to. Blaming in and of itself is not going to be helpful for people who are struggling with whatever their form of sexual acting out is. Um, blaming a childhood, but understanding to me is critical. When I understand these factors that have shaped me, first, it reduces a whole lot of shame. And then it gives me a path to now when I can pinpoint these are some false core beliefs, like I only matter for this kind of sexual person that I am. When I identify that, I can come to change that belief and and behave in relationships that is based on a different kind of belief. So what, you, what you're saying, I think, in many ways is fairly simple, which is that we all have needs. 
to be loved, to be appreciated, to be supported, to be cared for. They're more simple when we're little, you know, they're to be held or to be played with or to be cleaned and comforted and stimulated. But love is love, no matter where your age, it's still an experience of a connection. And what I hear you say that we all deserve and should have and need to have, but I hear that you had a lot of deficits and as I did in our connections with our caregivers for whatever reasons, you know, I had mental illness, you had, uh, your mother had passed away, your dad was troubled, but we didn't get the stuff, the nurturing, the, 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 the we didn't get what we needed. Uh, it's not that we weren't fed or, or we didn't have nice clothes to wear, or we didn't go to school or, you know, didn't have someone pick us up at the end of the day, but, but our souls, our hearts, our, our emotional needs were not fed. And then I heard you say that someone came along, which unfortunately and very sadly is typical for people who are perpetrators, is someone came into your life who saw how needful you were and began to take advantage of your needfulness by supplying those emotional needs, but also sexualizing the relationship. And that left you confusing sex and love. Does that sound about right? That is absolutely correct. That's a great summary. So do you think that all the clients we see have sexual abuse? No, not not at all. Um, actually, what I see today in our practice at Bethesda Workshops is probably far less of clients have the kind of especially overt sexual abuse that I experienced. You know, when when both of us, Rob, started working in this field 25 or 30 years ago, I'm, I'm outing us here in terms of our ages, but I would say that that the majority of people were overt sexual trauma survivors, and I don't see that today. This is a, a turn in our conversation, but what I see today is the abuser, if you will, the accelerator is our culture, that our sexually saturated, our sexually exploitive culture is in some ways having a little bit of the same effect of teaching men and women uh, about what it means to be masculine, to be feminine, to be a sexual person. And the culture is sending some really messed up messages. Well, I'm just thinking how needful I was. I mean, I used fantasy as a, a means of survival. And so I relate to I mean, I, I was a reader, so, you know, I would, I, I literally, and you probably know this morning, I read the encyclopedia in my little room three times because it gave me a place to go when mom and dad were screaming and yelling and fighting and I was locked in my room and, you know, I had a fantasy place that I could go. And so for me to learn that fantasy is a place that I can go to feel better, it's not much of a step to go from there to being an adult and using the most intense fantasy we can have, which is sexual fantasy. And so when you say what you're saying about the culture, I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I had been a kid today and gone up with the, grown up the way I did, I probably would have latched onto porn pretty early because it was so accessible and used it, in other words, pulled on the culture to escalate and to make myself feel better, to, to move into sexual fantasy, which is more intense than regular fantasy. And I probably would have stumbled on the problem even sooner or... Maybe what you're saying is there are people stumbling into this problem who might not necessarily have have walked into this issue, but because there's such availability for sexual content and it's ubiquitous and it does feel really, really good, and it can make you feel really good when you're feeling bad, that there are younger people who may be seeking it for soothing and to comfort themselves, just like I might have read that encyclopedia. I believe that's exactly what's happening. And and I think it's happening in a different way for women today. You know, I'm I'm a female and so I have such a heart for women who are struggling with sex love relationship addiction. But I think the culture 
uh, and our culture right now is exploding with the Me Too movement and and beginning really to take different looks, harder looks, more thoughtful looks at at the kind of culture that we've created in the last 50 years or so. And it has profound impacts on women and their sexuality. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love, and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com. Or call us at 747-234-4325. Well, you know, you talk about the culture, Marnie, and I have to, uh, I'm just going to be a little spontaneous. And, you know, uh, my uh, a, friend, a couple of friends and I were watching uh, one of the big Hollywood award shows recently. And, uh, you know, right in Hollywood, and I live in California, so I, see, I live in Southern California. I'm certainly around Hollywood. I, I really get the vibe that there are many women, you know, Oprah and Reese Witherspoon and a whole bunch of women are really trying to make life different for women. And I get the power of that. I get the power of the women coming together. You know, it's so exciting to watch. And yet, I had this weird feeling watching this award show because the women that were these same women who were fighting for their own freedom from oppression on a variety of levels sexually were wearing dresses that were cut down to their, well, I won't even say. And and I don't care. You know, it's fine with me. You can wear whatever you want. But if you're giving a message that you would like to be treated equally and with less of an objectified focus, and yet you walk across a stage looking completely like a sex object, and you want the attention for looking like that, but you don't want it when you don't want it, I just think it's a confusing world for men. That's what I want to say. And I'm not sure how we're supposed to react to all of that. And, and I understand what they want to, and you'll look at this, Marnie. I was treating a young man years and years ago, and I remember... You know, he was really trying to be sexually sober. He was trying to eliminate his problem behavior. And I remember he went into a busy record store and it was hot weather out here in California. And he ran into a woman who was wearing like a bikini top. And that day he came into group therapy and he was so angry. He said, I can't believe that I'm trying to work on my recovery and she's walking around like that. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, But I do think we live in a really confusing cultural time where the messages from the very same people are conflictual. And that kind of blows my mind. And I absolutely agree with that, Rob. And and frankly, this is um, a little bit of a scary conversation because this is such a controversial topic at the moment. But I, I think it's true. I think there's such a dichotomy between what women and men, but, but women say they really want, which is to be treated as individuals and not as sex objects and all that kind of stuff. And yet many of us, I, I thought some of the exact same things watching major award shows recently still haven't quite made that connection between, and yet I don't want you as a man to treat me as a sex object, but I'm treating myself as a sex object in terms of everything about my appearance and my aura. It's it's a very complicated and confusing environment that we haven't figured out yet. We haven't. And, and, you know, it's going to take a lot more honest conversations about human sexuality. I, I, I was recently, when the, all of the Harvey Weinstein stuff came up, I was uh, on a television show, um, CNN. And the only other person on that show was a, a, someone I tremendously admire, and I think you do too. His name is Dr. Fred Berlin. And um, I was on the show, and there we, were, there we were talking about women's abuse, women's violence. This was a really early in the Me Too movement. And 
Dr. Berlin said one thing and one thing only, which I thought was fascinating. He said, if we're going to help our culture, we have to have much more frank discussions about men's sexuality. And I thought, wow, of all the things he could have said, that that is, I mean, I, I love that. I get that. But I'm not sure most people would. How do you react to that? D- does that make sense to you? I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I actually would have to think about that. It feels like we've talked so much more about men's sexuality in our culture for a long time than we have overtly talked about women, which, again, maybe is part of the power and part of the Me Too movement. But I think we need to be talking about humans' sexuality and so much more than about genital-type sexuality or even abusive sexuality. But again, all of these things that make us human and they connect us, whether we're men or women, whether we're gay or straight, and yet all of the competing and conflicting values and belief systems that at the same time undermine healthy sexuality. And I think all of this objectification of women and of men and pornography is the primary accelerator of that, I think, is is creating a, a real a real difficulty. And, and what I want you folks who are listening to know, because I think Marnie said, oh, you know, we, we might be walking on some tough ground here. I think what Marnie means, and you can correct me, is that, you know, we could be tottering on uh, conservatism, you know, that the culture has to look a certain way, that women should dress or shouldn't dress in this way or that way. And really, I don't think that is what we're saying. We're more talking about what kinds of messages are we giving on every level and how do we communicate those messages in a consistent way? And the other thing I was going to say about that, and I, I think you would agree, Marnie, is that, um, you know, not every, this is not a problem for everyone. You know, like I, I often think when I think of sex and love addiction about alcoholism, you know, alcohol is a social lubricant. Alcohol has helped our culture for, for its time, cavemen had alcohol, you know, since time immemorial, it helped with social bonding and celebrations. And we still use it in that way. But if you're an alcoholic, it's a problem. And I'm not sure that the, you know, I think there are a lot of healthy people out there who are able to kind of maneuver their way through some of these cultural messages and emotional challenges. And But if you have had the kind of background where you've been abused, where you've been violated, where you have emotional vulnerabilities, where where you're not, where you have low self-esteem and shame, then it's really easy to get much more confused by the same messages that other people seem to be able to find their way through. Yes, I would agree with that. And I I think I do want to be clear and clarify. One of the reasons this conversation about women's attire might be dangerous ground is because I don't want to imply that because of what a woman may be wearing, she is opening herself up or deserves some type of abuse or assault. That's that's clearly not not true. That's right. She's not asking for it. But I, I do think it's an important conversation just I just call it the sexualization. Attire is only part of it, but it's a pretty big part, I would say. But I also agree with you that there are some who can navigate sexuality in this crazy, crazy culture without much difficulty. I kind of like to meet them because I don't know about you, but I don't see them in my office. So. (laughs) Well, I do have a a few healthy friends and, uh, and I have to say that, uh, you know, they, they know it's amazing. I, I, uh, a number of years ago when there was a lot of concern about um, children getting approached inappropriately online, uh, I sat down with a bunch of teenagers about 10 years ago, some healthy ones. I know they were healthy. And I said, you know, and they were girls. And I said, ladies, you know, you're 14, you're 15, you're 13, whatever. You're on social media all the time. You're engaged on, you know, if someone comes up and like flashes themselves to you or says something really like really 
sexual? What what happens? And all of those little healthy girls went, ew, I would get rid of him right away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good for them. (gasps) But I also know that the person who is, like you said, needful, empty, vulnerable, maybe they have a lot of conflict and stress, and that person starts reaching out to them, touching them uh, emotionally in some way, they may respond in ways that a healthier person wouldn't. And I always worry about the vulnerable. You know, that, those, are the, those are the people we see, I'm pretty sure. Right, right. So, Marnie, I, I, you, you talk about, um, you wrote a book, and, and the word uh, stones is in that. And I was thinking about touchstones, because I can think of four or five touchstones that have allowed me to get to a place where I am reasonably healthy with my sexuality, reasonably honorable and intact and have integrity. And maybe a better way of saying it is I think there's a few touchstones I could point to along my journey the last 30 years that have allowed me to become the person that maybe I would have been without all the abuse and the violation and all that stuff. What do you think were some of your touchstones? And even better, what are some of the touchstones that you see clients grabbing onto, both male and female? What are the, the little gotchas that begin to lead people into healing? I think that uh, a real beginning point is to tell the secret. That, you know, the 12 steps, beginning with Alcoholics Anonymous, talks about we are as sick as our secrets. And again, I think it's a, a positive that we're now having national conversations about sexuality in our culture. But a woman or a man who's struggling with sexual or relationship behavior healing begins when you talk with someone else and dare to get that secret out into the light. I think that's key. That's a beginning point. And when you're talking about secrets, what do you mean? Oh, I'm talking about the secret behavior that a woman or a man doesn't want other people to know. Maybe it's compulsively looking at pornography. Maybe it's being involved in other kinds of online sexual um, activities, chat rooms, or virtual reality type sex or stuff. Maybe it's compulsive masturbation. Maybe it's a pattern of dependent relationships, great emotional entanglements, whether or not they're um, sexual. uh, They can be problematic even just as a dependent uh, relationship where someone loses herself or himself. Maybe it's paying for sex in different ways, visiting prostitutes, massage parlors, strip clubs. When you talk about secrets... I think you're talking about being out of integrity. In other words, when I take a part of my life and I put it over there and I say, I'm not going to let anyone know about that, and that's just for me, and I won't let it affect anything else in my life, and no one will know about it, that's just mine, that, that that's the kind of secret you're talking about, the thing you don't want to tell anyone about, the thing you that is out of character for you. If, if someone saw you doing it, they would be surprised, and therefore you're not, you don't have integrity. Is, is that what you mean? Of, of course. Things that are, value, that are going against someone's value system. And, and that might be different for different people, but but the things that we're aware, I feel shame when I do this. This makes me feel um, dirty. It makes me feel bad about myself. Those things that are out of sync with um, the person that someone wants to be or hopes that, that they are. You know, I, I have run into men who said to me, hey, I... Being a sex addict is kind of cool. Who would want to be a sex addict? I'll get to have lots of fun. I've never heard a woman say that. Well, what we hear, Rob, is the men saying, boy, I sure wish my wife or my girlfriend were a sex addict. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't we have really, really super hot sex all the time? And I just, my claws come out when I hear that. Uh, I just think, 
oh my gosh, if you had any idea the devastation in a relationship from an issue like sexual addiction or what it does to the person herself, to that female herself, the the jokes just got so tired about 25 years ago like that. Well, that's kind of like saying, you know, um, I really like getting drunk once in a while, so I think I should just get drunk all the time. Right. It sounds fun, but doesn't really work in practice. Um, Marnie, I want to ask you a little bit about your work with adolescents. Uh, I I know that you've started a program for young women. And by the way, if you ever get to the point of wanting to do one for teenage males, let's talk about that. But um, I I can't imagine that you don't see yourself in them. And I don't mean that in an an unexamined way. But I mean that um, there must be some party that feels like that this is a, a, a duty that you have in some way to help these young women not end up where you ended up, not end up losing parts of their youth to painful, shameful sexual behavior. Um, what is that about your work with the with the young ladies? And I would say that's that's exactly right. I use the word redemption to describe that kind of feeling about this. It's it's why I began work with female sex love relationship addicts. I told our colleagues like Patrick Carnes and others. Um, Y'all wrote great books, but the pronouns are wrong. Uh, Somebody needs to be talking about women's struggle with sex addiction. And and we're at that point now uh, with female adolescents. Um, Frankly, Rob, there was a part of me that's resisted doing this program for several years. Uh, I have felt God's prompting uh, about doing that. I have definitely been aware of the need. We get so many calls wanting to know, you know, my 16-year-old daughter is sneaking out of the house to go meet men that she's connected with on Craigslist or on some app or something, and and we're terrified for what's happening with her. And to date, there's not really been any good program to, to direct her toward. And I frankly have been reluctant to step into that gap. My teenage years were so, so very difficult. Looked perfect on the outside from this perfect preacher's family, but just so in so much pain. And the thought of seeing that in the faces of other 16, 17, 14 year olds was really more than I was willing to lean into for a while. And through lots more therapy and some spiritual direction and a variety of things really uh, am ready, I think, at this point to to begin this. But the flip side of that is exactly what you've described. I think it can be very redemptive. The, the work that I get to do with sex addicts and partners and couples um, redeems my pain every day. And that's that's a reason that I'm in this field is to to try to be helpful to someone else. And I'm hoping that that's going to be true with these young women that that we hope will come to our teen females uh, and parents program. That's that's a different wrinkle. You know, this is my first rodeo. I know that we're not going to put 15, 16, 17-year-old girls in a hotel room by themselves overnight at a sex addiction workshop, that that's probably not a good plan. And I also know clinically that um, any kind of behavioral issue as well as a substance issue, but but these kinds of things, this is a family difficulty and there needs to be a family component of healing. So the girls will be accompanied by their parents and it's a family-based workshop. And I'm really excited about that component. I can only imagine how my life might could have been different if uh, there had been any kind of help for not only myself, but for my brothers and for our father. Well, there it is, Barney. I mean, um, how much better our lives would have been if someone like us were in it then, you know? Exactly. 
I mean, we do this work so that others don't have to. <laughs> we do this work so others don't have to try to go, th- don't have to go through the pain that we went through. Or at least so they don't have to do it alone. We do this work so that they can have the tools that, that we've learned that can be helpful about it. Hey, one thing about your adolescent program, I want to make a prediction, if I may, for you. You know, adolescent girls can be difficult to work with. Of course. They're scary. <laughs> Yikes. Especially ones who are sexually acting out and maybe they have other ways they're acting out. and they've all. But I guarantee, I will bet you, and I want to check in with you maybe on another podcast soon, um, I'm guessing that the parents are going to be harder than the kids. I imagine so. And one of the difficulties is going to be just talking about the culture, but it's also going to be talking about value system because probably no parent... Uh, regardless of their religious belief system, when ours is a Christian-based program, but they're not pleased that their 15, 16-year-old daughter is being sexual. And so to to help them understand that this isn't a program just because the daughter is sleeping with her you know, 17-year-old boyfriend and she's 17 and they're not happy about that. Well, right. that's, that's great for them not to be happy about that. That's probably not a wonderful choice for 17-year-olds to make. And that's not what we're talking about. I think I was nearly married at 17. <laughs> just to put that out there. So two things. Number one, I, I want to say, first of all, Marnie, that, um, you know, uh, I, I so admire you and always have for your outspokenness, for your willing to willingness to be flexible. And, and you have a calling, and that is for you, the Christian community. And it's a different calling than mine, but where we bond is around the pain and the hope yeah. And so a um, couple of quick things. Um, tell me where people can find you and reach you and, and what they might do if they do. Um, thanks so much. I am in Nashville, Tennessee, and I direct a program called Bethesda Workshops. Bethesda is the name of the program, not the place. We are in Nashville, but we are a short-term, just four days, clinical intensive workshop program for male sex addicts, a separate intensive for female sex addicts, an intensive for partners of sex addicts, then they can come back as couples. And now we have this program for teen females and, and their parents. I would also love to just mention the uh, my book about women's struggle with sex addiction. It's called No Stones, Women Redeemed from Sexual Addiction. And it's a book specifically for women's struggle in this area. And it's written within a Christian framework as well. So particularly helpful for those who, uh, for whom that's their belief system, but could be helpful for any any woman as as well, looking at what we've talked about mostly in this podcast, the woundedness that drives these behaviors, what the issue looks like in women, and then a path for freedom. Marnie Free, you are a dear friend and a wonderful, wonderful commission and, and a gift to your community. And, and an example, as we both are, of how you know we can turn lemons into lemonade. It, there is a lot of hope, but the first step has to do with letting other people know about your pain and getting out of the secret. And I'm looking forward to doing more podcasts with Marnie Faree of Nashville. Thanks, Marnie. Thanks, Rob. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.